Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for this day that you've given us. What a wonderful day it is to be able to come into your house to worship you, to lift up your name, to exalt you, to fellowship with one another and to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that as we continue in worship, that you would give us ears to hear. We want to hear the voice of our shepherd speaking into our hearts. Give us eyes to see because we want to see all that you want to reveal to us, Lord. We don't want to miss a thing. But above all, give us hearts that are receptive, that are humble before you, that allow you to shape us and conform us unto the image of Christ. We thank you so very much for this opportunity. We give you thanks in it. We ask your hand a blessing upon your church, and we ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we've got some good news. Of course, every week we have good news, but today's like really good news. And next week's even better. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Pippert tells about a time that she went to Harvard to sit in on a graduate level psychology class. And then on the same day after the class, she went to a Bible study in nearby Cambridge. And she tells of her experience. It kind of opens up what we want to talk about today. She writes, she says, first, the students in the graduate level psychology class were extraordinarily open and candid about their problems. It wasn't uncommon to hear them say, I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm jealous, or something of that nature. Their admission of their problems was the opposite of denial. But second, their openness about their problems was matched only by their uncertainty about where to find resources to overcome them. Having confessed, for example, their inability to forgive someone who had hurt them, they had absolutely no idea how to resolve the problem by forgiving, being kind and generous instead of being petty and vindictive. One day after that class, I dropped in in a Bible study in nearby Cambridge, and the contrast was striking. No one spoke openly about his or her problems. There was a lot of talk about God's answers and his promises, but very little about the participants and the problems they faced. The closest thing to an admission of sin or a personal problem was a reference to someone who was struggling and needed prayer. It seemed the first group, the psychology class, had all the problems but none of the answers. And the second group, the Bible study, had all the answers but none of the problems. You know, that shows you two ways, two wrong ways to deal with sin and issues in our life. Let me ask you a question. Who here has ever struggled against sin? Just had a struggle. All right? Who here has struggled and been left feeling defeated, discouraged, sometimes even despondent, and just overall hopeless. Anyone here ever felt that way? Just your struggle? Anyone? Okay, for the eight or nine hands that went up, this sermon's for you today. (laughs) The rest of you can just sit and watch. Look, if you've ever struggled, if you've ever felt like, why do I do this again and again? Why do I struggle with this issue? Why can't I get past this? I want you to understand something. You're not alone. You're not alone. 
Matter of fact, if we're all just going to be honest and open, I think every single one of us has some area or areas of our life in which we're just saying, God, I need help with this. Well, today, today we've got some good news for you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And today, I want us to see that in the struggle against sin, we can turn to Jesus, who not only gives us victory, but he also gives us hope. Jesus gives us victory and hope. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 12. We'll be reading through the rest of the chapter. So Romans 7. Let's start in verse 12. Let's read this together. Paul writes, So then, the law is holy... And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Don't be confused by that. Some people say, utterly sinful, what does that mean? Paul is just saying that through the law, sin was recognized as being utterly sinful, or to put it another way, it was just how deep and how dark it really is. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Don't get confused by all that. Do not want to do, want to do. Sometimes it can get a little, there's some struggling going on here. The good I want to do, I'm struggling to do that. And the bad I don't want to do, (laughs) I'm struggling not to do that. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) Amen. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's almost as if in this we see a, a, a dark room and in that one line there, God kicks open the door and rushes in the light to give us hope in Jesus Christ. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Look, this is good news. Don't be in any way dissuaded by the the depth of this to fail to see the good news it is. Today, I want us to look at two things. First, I want to look at our struggle against sin. And the secondly, I want us to look at the, our victory in the Spirit. Our victory in the Spirit. So we see here, Paul makes a stunning confession. All right? Paul makes a stunning confession. He knows the law is spiritual. He knows the law is good. He knows the law is righteous. But he is carnal. 
and he finds that he cannot keep it in his own strength. And so what happens here is we see that this leads to a powerful inner struggle. That there's this inner struggle happening within Paul. The very good that he wants to do. He wants to do the right thing, but he finds that he cannot do it. And the evil he does not want to do, he finds himself doing it. So what is he to do? What is he to do? Just give up? Say, forget it, I can't do this. No, no. What's clear in all this is that we need another route to righteousness, that the law is not going to make us righteous. We saw last week how the law, not only, it, it, the law leads us, it was always meant to ultimately lead us to Jesus Christ because the law reveals sin. And so the attempt to somehow keep the law or earn God's favor only ends up becoming a frustrating, hopeless experience. One that ultimately just continues to reveal the sin within us because the good we want to do, we find ourselves not doing it. And so we find ourselves wanting to keep this law, but we can't. And so we find you know, that we're just, we're getting, we're growing frustrated. And for many people, it can become this exasperating experience where you just finally say, man, I just, I give up. But what's clear in all of this is we're being led that we need another route to righteousness. We can't keep the law. So what do we do in this situation? Well, we turn to Jesus because ultimately we recognize that Jesus is the only one who can provide that means by which we are found righteous before God. And so here's the thing. Paul's struggle is our struggle. His struggle is our struggle. Would anybody agree with that? And so we see here a few things that we need to take note of. The first thing we need to take note of in Paul's struggle and our struggle, we need to see that first, sin is deceptive and deadly. Sin is deceptive and deadly. Paul writes in verses 12 and 13, he says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good. Well, and by the way, what is good? It's the law. It's the law. It used the law to do what? <clears throat> it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, that sin might be recognized for what it is, just how deep and dark and deadly it is. You know, one of the worst things we can do with sin is just kind of downplay its, its persistence, its depth, its darkness. Sin is deceptive, and it is dark, and it'll try and twist us and turn us at every single turn. You know, one of the worst things we can ever do is this, is treat sin like one of those things that we um, have just, you know, I've left that, yeah, that's, I'm done with that. Oh, yeah, sin? Ah, yeah, that's behind me, man. That's a mistake. Because that's right about the time in which you're going to stumble and fall. I want you to think about King David for a minute. All right? King David was a man known to be a man after God's own heart. Right? He loved the Lord. We know that David wasn't perfect. We know that David made many mistakes. 
It's what makes David such a, uh, I think, a commendable and even attractive character to us is because we see David's fault, and yet within him we see that he's a man after God's own heart. And so it encourages us. We say, hey, you know what, I, I can relate to that. But imagine David, while all the, the armies are off in war, imagine David just on a nice, beautiful night walking at the top of his roof. He's just walking there enjoying the night. He's not thinking about sin. Sin's behind him. He's not worried about that. And then suddenly out of nowhere he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And David is what? He's gripped by lust. He's gripped by sin. And he thinks, I must have her. And that's what he does. And nothing for David is ever the same. Nothing. I want you to think about that for a minute. Sin is deceptive. It is deadly. And if you're not careful, it'll capture you at the time which you least expect, and it'll grab you, and it will change your life forever. That's what we need to recognize. It's part of the point that Paul's making here that sin might become utterly sinful is to recognize the depth and the darkness and the deadliness of sin. We can never forget that. In many ways, we need to go to God daily and say, God, help me because I will be tempted today. I will face temptations. I will face these things and I need your help in order to overcome them. The minute we think we've got that thing licked is the minute that thing is going to come up and bite us right on the ankles or somewhere else, but I won't say where. In Paul's struggle and in our struggle, we need to see that first, sin is deceptive and it is deadly. But secondly, we need to recognize that the struggle against sin is real. The struggle against sin is real. Notice what he says here in verses 14 through um, 20. All right, I'll read this again. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. In other words, there's a sense of my conscience is bearing witness with me. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself, that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Look, has anyone ever identified with that situation? Found yourself maybe doing or saying something that you just, you look back and you say, why do I fall into that trap every single time? I mean, there have been times where I have literally said to myself, I'm not going to say that. And then 10 minutes later, I think, why did I say that? (laughs) Has anyone ever done that? Am I the only one? Good, because then uh, at least somebody's listening to this sermon this morning. (laughs) Look, the struggle against sin is real. Notice what Paul writes here in Galatians. In chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with each other 
so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Look, the, the struggle is very real. And the conflict is very real. Because the Spirit is constantly rebelling, or not rebelling, but is constantly waging war against the flesh. The flesh wages war against the Spirit. Does anyone here ever feel that conflict happening within them at times? And so we need to recognize that the struggle here is real. We, it's not, we are not to minimize it. We are not to try and, try and spiritualize it away. No matter how mature of a Christian you ever become, you will find yourself struggling in certain ways because you still live in the flesh. You still live in this flesh that is, that is broken and that is decaying. You know, it's like I hate to admit that I'm, I'm living in a, in a container that it doesn't look as good as it used to. I look at pictures of myself when I was young and I go, man, that was a handsome man. What the hell happened? <laughs> the struggle against sin is real. Don't downplay it. Don't over-spiritualize it. Acknowledge it. it. You know, just face it. And if you're thinking, well, Darren, what do I do in that situation? Where do I find hope? That's coming. All right? But let us get through this first. We see that Paul's struggle is our struggle, and in it we see that sin is both deceptive and deadly, that the struggle against sin is real, but we also see this, that we cannot please God in our own strength. We cannot please God in our own strength. So I find this law at work, Paul writes. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Look, we recognize here that we can't please God in our own strength. We cannot meet God's righteous standards in our own power. We simply can't do it. This doesn't mean that we don't try and do good. This doesn't mean because we have been created for good works, but we've not been saved by good works. Do you understand the distinction? We've been saved by grace through faith, but unto good works, that our response to God's saving work in our lives should be that we do good things, but we are not saved by those good things. But none of those good things ultimately please, I'm not going to say not please God, but, but earn God's favor. All right? Merit his favor. We cannot earn God's favor. I'm going to tell you something right now. And this is something that I want you to just accept. Acknowledge it and accept it, and that is this. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have God's favor. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have God's favor. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus in you. He doesn't see all the mistakes you've made. He doesn't see all that stuff. He sees Christ in you. You have God's favor. But we cannot earn God's favor in our own strength or by our own merit. And then finally, number four. So when Paul's struggle is our struggle, and in it we see that sin is deceptive and deadly, that the struggle against sin is real, that we cannot please God in our own strength, but finally this, we need help. We need help. 
The prideful person's going to rebel against that because they're going to say, man, I can, do, I can do it all on my own. And Jesus says, no, apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice what he says here in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. This is Paul. This is Paul the Apostle. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? We need help. That's what we need to come to God. We need to come to God and just say, God, I need your help. I need your help. There's a sense where we need to go before God and we need to come to God like this. I need your help. That's what we need to do. We can't be too proud to get on our knees before Almighty God and say, I need you. I remember in his book, um, Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ. I know it's not Christmas yet, but we're getting there. And Timothy Keller writes this. He says, Christmas is about receiving presents. But consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas Day from a friend, a a dear friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it's another book from another dear friend, and the book is entitled Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, "Uh, thank you very much, you are in a sense admitting, for I am indeed overweight and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive. Because to do so is to admit that you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps on some occasion you had a friend who figured out you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that has ever happened to you, you probably found that you had to receive the gift or that receiving the gift meant that you had to swallow your pride. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means that you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a good and moral life. And he makes an excellent point. We need help. So where do we find that help? You know, I'm just going to give you a heads up. Usually when I ask a question, 99% of the time, the answer is going to be Jesus. <laughs> we see that the struggle against sin is real. But we also see this, that we have victory in the Spirit. We have victory in the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. In case you're wondering, theologians have argued for years about the person that Paul is speaking with here in Romans chapter 7. Could this really be Paul the Apostle? Could this really be him? He has to be speaking about somebody else. Maybe he's speaking of a carnal Christian. Maybe he's speaking of himself before he came to Christ. You know, there, you know they, I see, I read no less than eight different commentaries this past week uh, from different you know, theologians arguing this, and I read all kinds of different viewpoints, some theologians twitching themselves into knots trying to figure out who this person is that Paul's speaking of. You know, this person, for example, you know, I, 
you know, I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I do. And they think, oh, this can't be Paul. And my thought is, it's absolutely Paul. It is absolutely Paul. I think Paul is doing everything he can to show us the depth of sin, how deep sin goes, which for me only brings out the contrast of how much Jesus has rescued us from. Jesus didn't rescue me from a little bit or from this much. He rescued me from more than that. I mean, he rescued me from it all. The simple truth is that Paul's use of present tense verbs, I believe, and the first person singular support the idea that ultimately he's speaking of himself and he's leading us to a larger point. What is that larger point? That larger point is that our nature is so corrupted by sin that we cannot please God or be found righteous in our own power. In our own power. As such, we need to stop struggling and trust in Jesus' provision for sin and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for Christian living. Notice what he says here. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That one sentence right there changes everything. It changes everything. It takes us from this place of hopelessness and despair to a place of hope and life. We find hope in these things. First, we find hope in that we are delivered from the bondage of sin and crushing burden of the law through Jesus Christ. We are delivered from the bondage of sin and the crushing burden of the law through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sets us free. He is our freedom. He is our hope. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some translations say, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who rescues me who rescues me. And that's what Jesus does. He rescues me. There was a night on my bed many years ago when I believed in Jesus, when I recognized I needed to be rescued. And you know, interestingly enough, I recognized that I needed to be rescued from myself. It was me. I was my greatest enemy. So full of pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency. I had a cockiness about me. Oh, you would have hated me. And I needed to come to the end of that. I needed to come to this place and recognize I need you. I need your rescuing. I can't save myself. We find hope in that we are delivered <clears throat> excuse me, from the bondage of sin and crushing burden of the law through Jesus Christ. And second, we find hope that we have the Holy Spirit who enables us to live righteous lives that bear fruit for God's glory. <clears throat> no longer do we have to <clears throat> try and do this ourselves, but we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The God, the Holy Spirit living in us, the very source that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Empowering us, strengthening us, informing us, teaching us, rebuking us. Jesus, in John chapter 14, says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, helper, 
paraclete to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This is his promise. That we have the Holy Spirit in us, empowering us to live the lives that he calls us to live as his people. Thank you, Jesus. Look, in our struggle against sin, we find that Jesus gives us victory and hope. And I, my prayer is that today we will turn to Jesus. We will turn to Jesus in confession. We will turn to him in repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is his promise. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It's no use trying to convince yourself or God or anyone else that you have no sin. Rather, confess your sins. Repent. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is his promise. And then here is the second promise. Let us cast our cares and our fears and our insecurities and our insufficiencies upon the Lord himself. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Is anyone here weary and burdened? Are you tired of trying to earn something that you don't have to earn? Are you burdened by sin? Are you burdened maybe by something else? Maybe there's something heavy upon your heart. You just need to give it to the Lord today. Give it to Him. Cast all your cares upon the Lord because the Lord cares for you. That is his promise. That he will take these burdens from you and take them upon himself and instead he will lay upon you his burden. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. You trust in Jesus. Trust in him today and he will carry those burdens and he will lighten that load and he will give you the freedom that we seek more than anything else. Isn't that great news? We are no longer burdened by sin, but rather Jesus has taken that burden upon himself and given us freedom. Let us walk in that freedom today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the freedom that you offer us in Jesus Christ. Lord, these can be challenging verses because we see how Paul's struggle is in many ways our struggle. When Paul says something like, "Uh, the very good thing I I want to do, I don't do, and the evil thing I don't want to do, this I do. What am I to do? What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? 
Jesus Christ. He is our answer. He is our hope. And he is our victory. So help us, Lord, to walk in that victory. And may it start, Lord, with us just giving to you all of our failures, all of our failings, all the ways in which we have fallen short. Help us, Lord, to come to you honestly and openly, confessing our sins, turning from them, casting our cares upon you, that you would take that load and that we would walk in the freedom that you have given us. We thank you so very much. Be with your people this week, Lord. Fill them with your spirit and encourage their hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen.